Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Kenny Buller from the Second Floor Podcast. I want to take a second right now to let you know that this is hands down our most important episode we have done to date. I bring to you a man who so vulnerably shares his own personal story associated with victim blaming, with forgiveness, with second chances, rehabilitation, not being defined by what you've done, but more so being defined by who you are. And this is none other than Jose Lugo, who has created a platform with his brother called We Are All One Story. He is an ex-Los Angeles gang member who was convicted for certain crimes in which he did for five years he was put in jail and he shares with us his story and what got him in a gang in the first place what jail is really like you know what's it like coming back out of jail when you know you've done certain things that you no longer want to be defined as and coming out of it with hope with fear with anxiety, with depression, with wanting to kill yourself and everything else in between, trying to find your support system. We get really deep, we get really serious. This episode probably isn't for everybody, but it is for those who do believe in second chances, who do believe in recognizing that if you really need to forgive others, you first of all, you do need to forgive yourself. We talk a little bit about how you can do that. You know, I personally share certain moments in my life where I feel like I've got personally robbed of my childhood over certain things that I was a part of, but I don't regret and it's not as serious as Jose's story. We get very detailed in Jose's story and we talk a little bit about his platform, We Are All One Story, that him and his brother have created to allow anyone and everyone in the world to share anything that they're hiding or anything that they feel is a part of their identity or is no longer a part of their identity that they'd like to bring to light into the world. And that is one of the biggest things that warmed my heart in bringing Jose on because in light of what we do, we bring on thrivers, we bring on survivors, we bring on um, everything else in between for individuals who bring on good vibes in the space of life, business, and health. And Jose is doing that for everybody. So if you're out there and you're listening to this and you have a story and you still battle with the thought of ever even needing to forgive yourself or even struggling to forgive other people who you wish were more there for you in your life, then this one's for you. And this is something where I hope through hearing what Jose has to say, you bring back the focus to yourself and you recognize that you're worth so much more than the ceiling you put over and above your head. And by ceiling, I mean metaphorical ceiling, something in which you know all of us continue to feel like we cap ourselves due to certain limitations we're putting on ourselves or due to certain factors that we cannot control but just remember that by listening to this episode and and watching it i genuinely feel like you are are going to better yourself 
and come out of it stronger. And I certainly did when I felt very empowered to hear how Jose has now two years clean, hasn't drank alcohol since, since coming out of his experience. He's a changed man. And I truly believe in uh, my heart that this man is going to impact millions of lives. And here is his journey, the one and only Jose Lugo. Welcome, Jose Lugo, to the Second Floor Podcast. I want to make sure I'm saying your name correctly, my friend. Is that how you pronounce your name? Yeah, Jose Lugo sounded pretty good to me. Perfect. That's awesome. I I want to just start off, man, by just thanking you for being so vulnerable and being able to come on to our platform and share your story. I, I find personally from the conversation we've had, as well as the conversations that I've seen um, with you being a guest on other shows, you talk a lot about being vulnerable. You talk a lot about sacrifice, forgiveness, survival, and identity. I'd like us to pick up off some of those things you've already mentioned and go deeper into some of those subjects. And I just want to already state that interview that I saw you on where I'd love to share a link where others can even hear more of your story. You said something that really resonated with me and you talked about Jose, you know, you're not defined by what you've done. You're, you're defined by who you are. That is something that it was very impactful. And in order to forgive anyone in your life who you rightfully so find that should not be in your life anymore, in order to actually forgive them, such as both your parents, based off of the circumstance you were in, you, you need to forgive yourself first. And those were such powerful words. And I just want to start off by asking you, Jose, because I'm sure there's so many things you've already said and you've been vulnerable to share. You were, you were in tears several times sharing your story on your platform. And it just shows how real this is and, and how much you've gone through. I'd like to know what was the most healing thing you've mentioned about being an ex-gang member and, and, and being other elements and other things in your life that you're not anymore and that you've grown. What, what were some things you shared out loud that felt healing and therapeutic for you after being on this journey of, of sharing this across the nation? Um, telling other people that their story matters. Every time I tell somebody else that their story matters, I'm telling myself that my story matters. You know, what we do is dynamic. It's, it's complex. It's not, it's not surface level. We try and go deep into the person and, and deep into their essence of a person. And for me, the most healing part is listening to another person's story and seeing emotional pieces of my story and their story within their trauma and, and making that connection. And, and if I, in my heart say that that person has value, what I'm saying really is that I have value. And, you know, for me, that's the most healing. Every time, you know, I say that 
you know, it, 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 it works in many different ways. It works for the person who needs to hear it. And it works for me because I still need to hear it because we live in a world that tells you if you don't have anything, you aren't anything. And we need to be reminded of the truth of our value. And it's something that kind of, unfortunately, it's something we have to search for when it shouldn't. It should be something that we're reminded of every day. It certainly is. And I, I find so many people seek value extrinsically, you know, out there as opposed to in here. And you shared that a lot in previous, um, you know, media platforms you've been on. How, how would you say, Jose, for you, what, what helped you find value um, internally? Uh, what did that process look like for you as, as you've um, come to terms with recognizing that, you know, you're, 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 you're far more capable of, of getting back to society and not being defined by um, just previous things that uh, no longer move or shake who you are anymore? I mean, it was a lifetime process. You know, um, and I'm still on it. I'm still on the journey and, and it never stops. You know, when you stop, you regress and you have the, the, the chance to relapse and, and to slide back. You know, you have to continue moving forward. And, you know, that's what I do every day because I know what life looked like in the rearview mirror and it was ugly and it's scary and it's terrifying. I didn't know it then, but when I look back at it now, I was like, oh my God, can't believe I was living that way with complete disregard for my own life and disregard for the lives of anybody else. Um, you know, so the process that got me to that realization was, you know, um, you know, a journey back into my own self, a journey back into my very own story. You know, we all look for answers and I truly believe that all the answers we're looking for are in the plots and themes of our own story. It's in, the, it's in you, it's within you and it's outside of you and the fact that it's outside of you in story mode, but it's in you in feeling and emotion and how you're computing and processing these events that you've been through. And, and for me, finally, like when I hit, you know, rock bottom as, as, you know, as I've talked to you about it before, you know, I got to a point in my life where I wanted to kill myself and take my own life. And I thought that was the best course of action i thought my life didn't matter and i thought my story didn't matter and this was something jose that with suicide did you feel this way even before being a part of a gang was that something you already felt when you wanted to be a part of something or, or was this during and after that process you know the i had never had suicidal thoughts until a few years ago i never knew what that felt like and you know um i have a cousin who hung himself and I couldn't understand why he would kill himself like how do you kill yourself and and didn't make sense to me and you know and it always bothered me I always thought about him I loved him and I cared for him and it was just you know um what did what takes a person there to say like this is it I'm gonna take my own life I don't want to live anymore and um you know I, I I've t have talks with my sisters about stuff I go through and you know one of my sisters said Carlos the way you were living it's like you wanted to die it's like somewhere deep down inside you are you had already given up and I definitely did give up I feel like I had lost hope when I was 16 years old 
you know, I was always a believer. I always had faith in those things, but when the environment overwhelms you with its circumstances and you walk outside your front door and all you see is violence and all you see is violence inside the home and outside of it, it changes the way you see the world. You don't see the world in the most optimistic way. You see the world as it is shown to you. And that's all I... I was just going to say, you get shown and proved that the world's a dark and scary place when you, when you put yourself in that situation. Exactly. And, and it just like, re- reaffirmed all my negative beliefs. Yeah. I, I, I find that I'm also curious to wonder if it was a surprise to you at all in recognizing that being a part of a gang is far scarier and, and far more cruel than what you anticipated when you felt like you wanted to just belong to something. And I, I share that in recognizing from the story that I am been piecing together from what I've seen and from what you shared with me, Jose, where, you know, when you saw your parents divorce at five years old and the, the, the tremendous amount of abuse you were going through in your household from your mother and then afterwards, as you went out there and wanted to feel like you were a part of something, what was a moment you had where you were like, this is not what I anticipated this would be like? I never had that moment. I was lost. You know, that's that's how a lot of us are in the streets. Like when you're really in there, that you're, there's a lot of deep levels. Like um, it felt normal, you know, when... You know, my mom was physically um, abusive. She was physically violent. And, you know, it starts at a young age. So from a young age, I have to rationalize the person that I love the most in this world is physically hurting me. I some way, somehow, deep down inside, kind of think it's okay. Because I have to. I have to rationalize, you know, the negative and try and make it normal. And once you do that at a young age, the extension of the violence in the streets, it's like I've already come to terms with violence being okay. So it wasn't, it wasn't, oh man, you know, geez, man, this, this must be bad. It was like, no, this is more of the same. This is normal. And in its own twisted way, um, you think it's a form of love. I certainly did. You know, I thought like, hey, this is loyalty. This is friendship. Um, companionship you know um it's the only love i had known and it's the only love that a lot of us only know in the streets and you know we go out searching for it and what we find is a twisted perverted conditional love that in the long run tears you down i I really appreciate you sharing that and and that's that's not easy to talk about there's like let's just say for anyone listening to this if they know someone or they themselves have contemplated whether or not they wanted to be a part of um of a group or a a gang per se that's involved in in uh physically violent or or criminal-like activities and it's either because it's rebellious it feels like it needs to put them in a place where they can numb pain they're already dealing with and maybe they're seeking for answers. Is there any answers you felt like you found um, being a part of a gang there, Jose, that you could come out and say now, so someone, whoever's going through that, 
can just understand and reflect upon your experience be like wait a minute Jose's that's you know sharing all of this and he's coming out recognizing that it is a part of your story and it has shaped you up to who you are now but it's definitely depending on how you view this if you could go back maybe would be one of those things you change or or certain elements of how you went through it would change but if you could share one thing Jose that you experience that maybe others you find who are in a similar position as you are seeking what what did you what did you find in that experience and um this being from a perspective of someone who they're curious they want in they want to know what it's like to be a part of something i mean it's so tough when you're young and you're trying to you know go out there in the world and, and, and try and do it on your own and, and try and belong to something really bigger than yourself. I mean, I felt like I was the shit when I, you know, when you're 16, part of a gang, like you feel like you're the big, big guy on the block. On, on top, top of the, the world. world. Yeah. On top of the world. And, and um, you're getting everything right now. You're getting money, you're getting girls, you're partying. You f- and you look at all the other kids because we're kids. Let's you know, let's call it what it is. And yeah. you look at all the other kids, and you think they're living a boring life. You think that you know that you're living the most exciting life, but that life comes with a very, very high price. If you want to pay that price for that lifestyle, more power to you. But if anyone's listening to this, you can't say that no one's ever told you what that price is because in the streets no one tells you the price you're going to pay and that price is going to either be your freedom your life or your sanity because that's what happens to us we either end up in jail we either end up on the street corner as drug addicts you know if we're against the odds as it is and we just keep on stacking the deck against ourselves it's like it's not how it works you know we have a misconception of, of what it means to be successful when you're in that lifestyle. And in that lifestyle, success is doing illegal activity, hurting people, crime, robbing, stealing, killing. That leads you to failure on multiple levels. And a lot of us don't make it out. It's, you know, when you put it that way, Jose, it goes to show that there's like this list of things like a job would entail. Of like, this is what you're going to do with this job. And from what you're saying, it sounds like to me, there's this list of things that maybe you have an idea that it's involved with. And you're going with the flow and you're getting this rush of excitement and this rush of joy, you know, living on the edge and feeling like this badass at that age. But then as you keep going about those activities and there's these things you have to do that come with it, you start recognizing like, I could, I could get thrown in at any point in time right now yeah you i mean at least at least for anyone who's in it at least you know be aware go in yeah. knowing what the going knowing what the circumstances are don't go in like uh blindly i mean open your eyes as much as you can right now and, and really sit down and think <coughs> is this the life i want for myself like hey like you look at the successful dudes in the streets Okay, I'll tell you that the successful dudes in the streets, a lot of times they've had to 
if they haven't done it themselves, have been involved in murders, are you willing to take somebody's life to reach your success? Okay, so say you, this is what you want to do. You need to understand you're saying okay to these things. And this is the environment you're creating that you're a part of. And the only way to get out of it, really that there's hope, you got to step out of that environment and you, all the friends who are in, the, who are gangbanging, do whatever they're doing. It's like, unless you want to go where they're going, you need to take your, you need to take yourself out of that environment because when you're in the environment, the environment's too powerful. You got to find a way to get out of it. It's like, there's a hierarchy to it. Right. Where it's like, okay, we're going to, we're going to start you off with, you know, go, go take this money and go send it off over there. Do me a favor. And it starts off very easy. It starts off very like, oh, you're, you're almost convincing yourself like, oh, that's not so bad. I mean, it's not really a bad thing. It's just money. Then it turns into the whole other substance it turns in drugs. And then it turns into, okay, I just want you to go in, break into that store. You don't have to break anything. Just go grab something, come out. And to your point, eventually it's like, the hierarchy of, okay, you're going to do this next thing that's probably if you get caught, you're going to have to do more time. Oh, now you're going to have to take someone's life. And if you do, you're going to get this and this and this, this reward, that reward, this reward. And that's looking from the outside in. This is from the perspective of someone who probably watched too much Netflix uh, soap operas. But I mean, for someone who's lived it in your perspective, like how true is that? It's very true. If you want to be successful in the streets, that's what you have to do. If, if you don't do it yourself, if you don't pull the trigger yourself, I mean, you're in the, you're, you're in that environment. You're saying, okay, you're saying these things are okay at the very least. Before we sort of dive in uh, the consequences that you faced and then having to do time, I just want to share something that even for me, I personally, Jose, almost kind of felt. And, you know, I've never been a part of a gang or anything, but I almost felt like I was a part of a, a brotherhood in a sense where at a young age, you know, my cousins and, and their friends, they, they, they took such good care of me. You know, they saw that I was, you know, like this, this little outgoing kid, 15, very young, very young, 14 even. And I went out with them, you know, like, uh, at my own will, that was something that I agreed on. And, um, I went out and did things at that age that, that no normal teenager uh, would have the opportunity to do. And that was, you know, partying and uh, doing things at a, a young age that a normal 14-year-old kid, you know, that should be a kid, should be playing Call of Duty on weekends. And here I am at that time with fake IDs and just, just partying, enjoying. I only let it get that far. Uh, drinking at an age in which was younger than I was supposed to. And, and I'll, I'll admit that for the first time on air here. And then just me feeling like, uh, you know, you're, you're out here saying things that, um, you know, are so honest. And I just want to share myself where the biggest thing I feel like I got robbed, where sometimes I can't help but wonder why it comes back, especially in my early 20s, was that childlike behavior that always kind of stayed with me. And there was times I reflected, Jose, where I was like, well, maybe it's because I tried to grow up too quick. And, you know, I was like, I was always around all these older guys, you know, who rightfully so are legally enjoying themselves, you know, like partying, going out, traveling, right, having fun, celebrating. And for me, I was just like, you know, I turned around 20 and I was like, well, I got to refocus where I want my life to go. 
And I, I need to make sure I bring it, bring it back to, to things that matter. Otherwise, this, this is, to your point, it's going to lead somewhere. It's going to lead to, oh, let's do something harder. And I'm so glad I never, you know, like I, I didn't want to try and dive into things that would be far too addicting with my addictive personality. I just, I kept things with drinking and, and then I just recognized I needed to keep some healthy distance. And I'm just wondering if you personally felt like you reached a point where you're like, damn, like, where'd my childhood go? Like, did I get to experience that? Did you did you crave that the way I did out of curiosity, knowing your circumstances and what you were involved in were obviously far heavier? So it's like you do, like in life, I think we all have like multiple eureka moments where like, hey, something's got like, you know, just somewhere deep down, like something's not wrong and, you know, or something is wrong. Maybe I should tweak this a little bit. And, you know, I went, I got sentenced when I was 18 and a half and you know, I got a five-year prison sentence and um, it wasn't until my last year that I looked outside. I was on the level four maximum security yard. So, which means that the only inmates there are you either have life, life without the possibility, or you're in there for violent, you know, violent offenses. And um, I remember looking out my cell window and just kind of taking everything in. And, and when I was, Sorry to cut you off, Jose, but that was a mix. Like they had a mix of people who are in there for life, who are in there um, like without uh, a time to come out and just people who've done violent crimes all in one pool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the reason I was there, I had like I had a short time was because, um, you know, I had a violent jacket inside of jail. So it, you go on a point system. So you don't just get sent to the level four maximum security yard. They give you points. So one of the factors is your crime in and of itself, and then your behavior in the county jail, and then in prison, and then, you know, it's like jails within jails. Okay. So did you have to do something disregarded inside to get to level four to that point where you're in the mix? I mean, I was... um you know, the LA County jail is, is like a third world country jail. It's pretty close to it. And, um, there's violence every day and I was definitely a part of it. And, you know, the gang violence, you know, um, you know, it didn't stop when I went to prison It intensified. So, you know, there was race riots. There was, there was so many things in there and, you end up getting, you know, written up a jacket. And that's why since I had that small amount of time compared to the lifers and life without, that's why I was sent to the level four yard. And, you know, um, it gave me perspective. You know, you think you're all bad and everything like these guys are never getting out. Like, you know, I was able to, to see life like kind of a little bit with the different lands. Like, Hey, I may have, got in this sentence but this guy has 10 years the next guy has 20 the next guy's never getting out so yeah, it did, it, yeah i mean yeah you have to be you have to be and um well i was i was there and and i see like all the you know the shot callers the real the real ogs you know the the killers the murderers the people who feed off of that are like, this is who I am. I'm a killer. And they just, this is who they are. And I remember looking out my cell window and I was like, man, this is our retirement plan. 
Like, are you kidding me? And I was like, this is what I'm, if I were, like I envisioned it, like if I'm going to make it to the top of this street life, because there was things that I did enjoy about it, like anybody else. I was like, but if I'm going to make it to the top, this is, you know, like I'm going to end up what cleaning tables for 40 cents an hour on a level four maximum security yard for 40 years, for 40 like years. minimum, you know, until you die. And then, and then that's, I did have a, a, like where you had that moment at 20, I had that, I was maybe 21 and I looked out the, and I was like, you know what? I didn't know what I had to do exactly, but I was like, man, I'm not giving my heart all the way to this because at some point you got to choose, like, are you going to do it 100% and see this going forward? Or are you going to try and change your life a little bit? And in that moment, I knew that um, it was all bullshit at the end of the day. Like when you see all the shot callers, the G's, the right, like, like we're all in here working for 40 cents an hour. We, whenever the cops tell us to do something, we do it. We fight and still kill each other, but you have your enemies on the, on the streets there. And like, it's, it didn't make sense at that point. And it didn't feel rehabilitative. Oh, it's not rehabilitating at all. Yeah, you almost felt like you're like, what the, like, you're like, I'm surrounded around more gang violence in here than I was out there. Like, rehabilitating at all. Um, but after that, when I got out of prison, I did have uh, an idea that because there's my homies still were my homies, but it was more like, okay, I'm not going to hang around the shooters. You know what I mean? So I made a decision because there is a group of homies who like, that's what they like to do. I'm like, okay, well, I'll hang around the homies, but these are like the non-active. <laughs> these are the nicer guys. They're, they're not as dangerous. I mean, it's a scale, but at least it was like, I at least fundamentally, fun, in a fundamental level, I knew that I couldn't hang around the violent homies because I would just get sucked into it because I would naturally do it. You know what I mean? So I was like, I made a decision to at least hang around these guys. And like that bought me time to make other decisions. Yeah. What a, what a whirlwind of, uh, of an experience and not recognizing what it's going to be like once you're in and then you're inside and you have to, you have to almost start like any other place in society, figuring out, well, who's going to be my go-to's. You know, who are going to be the people that I can lean on and trust? And you talked about how unrehabilitative that experience was. You know, what what could, like, let's just call it jail institutions do based off of you being inside? What can they do better? What were some things where you were like, especially now, you're like, you know what, this was bullshit. We, uh, this is what we had to do. There wasn't enough this. There wasn't any of this. And you looking now, being as well-spoken, as well-thought-out as you are, Jose, especially for those in there now, especially for the people that just got charged yesterday and have been convicted of doing something, and now they're thrown in for at least five years. What are some, like, tangibles that maybe you feel like they can personally do? Or it's like, sorry, man, like... You just got to, you got to do X, Y, Z in your own head on your own. And that's, what's going to help you. And from an institutional perspective, they got to do X, Y, Z to ensure that when people get out, they, they, they got a little bit of a bit of a better understanding of how to come back into society without going back in. I know that's a heavy question. 
Yeah, you know, it's always a heavy question. I mean, I still have a lot of friends who are in there and, you know, you know, whether they're bad guys, it doesn't matter. They're at the end of the day, they're still my friends and and um you know, there are like I said before, some people who are in there are not rehabilitated and they don't want to be rehabilitated. There is a there is a level of, of of remorse that's required to reach rehabilitation. And there's no, there's no getting around that. If there's no remorse, there's no rehabilitation. There's no lesson learned, you know, and it's tough. It's a tough, such a tough situation to be in because you have to acknowledge, and I do acknowledge the many faults in the system, but I have no control over that. I do have control over my own faults. That's what I focus on, you know, because if I keep on pointing the finger out, I never get better. And it's tough to say, and it's, it's tough for me to say because I was there. And I know for a lot of, you know, my homies, maybe they don't like when I say that, but we can't deny that that's the truth. And, you know, I can talk about all the system failures and, and all these things. And I believe it's half on the system and 100% on the individual to make the decision to change. There are factors that, you know, we are up against it, you know, in our environment. But at the end of the day, for me personally, I did the crime. Like I hurt people. You know, five years, that was a light sentence for me, even though I was 18 and a half. People could have died. There was a gun involved. I mean, if, if, if the crime had pulled the trigger, I would have life without. And guess what? I, I feel that I would have to do that time. Somebody's son, somebody's daughter is gone. You know, life matters. Traumatizing innocent people, like there should, there's repercussions for your actions and, and that's never going to change. There's always gonna be, for whatever you do, you're gonna get something back. The sooner you realize that you're in control by the things that you decide to do, the better and the sooner your life begins to change. Like, um, you know, in prison for me, the thing, if we, if we want to do get into details, the cops are like gang members in there. The police don't police themselves. Very corrupt. Very corrupt. And they let you know as soon as you're in there, hey, we're the biggest gang in here. Shut the fuck up. The hardest is hard gets. Like they, 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 they treat you like. like well, they world. treat us like, like criminals. <laughs> um, there's no being sorry for you guys. There's no, oh, you're in here for life. That sucks. There's like, your, your life's a living hell no, from not, here. Not, on. not one not bit. One but, bit. you know, in my experience, I was in the gang activities also in prison. Like, I didn't go to prison for a drug offense or, you know, a possession or an accident or, you know, I was in there knowingly committing crime. You know, we like to make these blanket statements that don't fit each individual case and each individual case is different. You know, for mine, yes, it was serious. I deserved it. But there's other times since we have these blanket sentences and these blanket, you know, sentencing laws that people do get caught up in that. And, you know, how do you rectify that? You know, you know, it's like, what's the option? Do we give the judge the discretion to be able to give out 
unique sentences per individual or do we stick with the indiscriminate sentencing laws because that's how they figured you know that it would be fair yep you did this you 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 admit you're guilty you get this much time you did this this how much time you get that cookie cutter approach as opposed to well why did this person get involved in it? How did they do it? What, like, tell, tell us the story, unfold it. It, it. it makes me, it turns into a whole snowball effect of, of how much involvement there is and the whole deny till you die mentality or the running away from your problems mentality where maybe you know this from experience from yourself or, or friends that have been involved where it's like, listen, just admit you're at fault. Be genuinely sorry do your time, keep your nose down, and do whatever you can to get back out because you just realize how big of a mess you got yourself in. Yeah. You know, it's um, it's, it's just there's so many layers to it when you put it that way. With 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 the circumstances, Jose, of of of, of you know, like what you said was just so powerful. I want, to, I want to start off by saying that. Like literally what you said, I imagine anyone who is, is going to do a very wrongful deed or do something that is um, potentially offing someone else or offing themselves, you bringing it back to yourself and, and genuinely having remorse and genuinely trying to change. You, you know when they say once you're in, it's hard to get out. How, how did you get out? Like when you came out, and there might have been a possibility in trying to get back in with friends or people calling you and you still being alive to tell your story today. You know, when people genuinely want to get out and they find a way to come back in, I'm sure it's so case by case, but like, how does someone do that? Because then I say this personally because I put my heart on my sleeve when I see people that I've personally trained with in martial arts and MMA and that's that's a whole other conversation where people find um, men find solace with themselves and doing something as violent as MMA. But there's the discipline aspect of it. There's that brotherhood that like, oh, I'm going in with the guys and I'm going to learn. And some people have come across the nicest guys ever, man, the nicest. And, and, and I'm like, I'm like, were you this, were you this nice now that you want to get out? And they're like, man, I was always this nice. I just, I got a wrong card in life. And they talk a little bit about their past. And it just makes me realize that like, when I had, when I sat down and talked to some of them and they're still involved in some capacity, I can't help but just think like, damn, like what do they have to do? And what, what can they do to get out? You know, unless it's, you know, so, so you're saying like you get out of prison and, but also get out of the lifestyle. Yes. You completely, you, you, yeah. like in a way how you are, right? Yeah. I, I mean, hey, it's tough. <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not done overnight. overnight. <laughs> um, you know, I think if we want to talk on an institutional level, I do think that there needs to be, when inmates get out, there needs to be support for them so that they're not overwhelmed by like freaking regular life because it is extremely overwhelming. You get out, hey, good luck to you. You know, like, bro, 10 years just changed. The world is completely different now. You know, um, we do need to have more support because you buckled under the pressure. It's extremely hard. You know, the reason that I was able to stay afloat because that's all I did was stay afloat and bought myself time was because I had a family support system. 
And that is super important. Even though during the time I couldn't understand the importance of having at least, you know, not having to live at the homie's house. Cause then I'm right back in the environment, you know? So when I got out, I moved in with my sisters and I had that at least that reprieve physically from the streets. Um, mentally I was still in it. I mean, I was institutionalized like most of us who've done time are like, um, that was the hardest part was to get out of the mindset. It was extremely difficult and it's not anything I necessarily try to do. It just ended up happening, be, happening because when I hit rock bottom, I had a, the, another realization that, man, the entire way I've been thinking and seeing life is completely wrong. Me thinking that people are out to hurt me, wrong. Me thinking that I can't trust any other human being, wrong. Me thinking, you know, that I have to try and get over, figure out, you know, how to do this, do that, wrong. But these are all the things that help you survive in the street. So you have to literally break that foundational thought process, which isn't easy. Yeah, you're reborn again. You, 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 you come out taking every little, let's say, thing that made you mad and made you make certain decisions because you're so angry at the world that's gone you're, you're going in clean slate you're walking out those doors not looking back and recognizing that like it's day one it's day one today and and it's terrifying. yeah i can imagine everything from trying to build back your social support your financial support and what i really appreciate about you jose is, is the first thing you said to me when I ask you if there's anything that's off limits, as is, is you said, you're an open book. This is something I'm genuinely curious about. When it came to finding certain jobs you could do and, and, and making your way back in, you know, how difficult was that for you? And, and what, what did you really have to rely on to kind of come back to, to, you know, make ends meet with recognizing that, hey, whether it's in the first 10 seconds you tell someone the moment you have an interview or it's in the moment you know you have to get a record check done. I, 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 I just, I want to acknowledge that that's, that's not easy because that's a constant reminder of the past that which you aren't anymore. And then you get that look or you get that, um, you kind of just see that shift in that person. And depending on whether or not they can hear you out, the way I'm sure thousands and hundreds of people are able to now and recognize that you are a completely different person. You know, as cliche as it is to say, you've, you've revived, just like it says on my hoodie here. You know, one of my buddies in our city, he runs this company called Revival and he does a whole apparel company on it. But besides that, like, how did you go through that experience? Man, it was tough. Um, you know, when I got out, uh, I still did illegal activities up to three years ago. Like I was still involved in different ways <sighs> because it's hard to let go of it when it's part of your identity. Like um, it's part, it, it was part of who I was, who I, I created this whole persona of this gang member that I'd rather people see, you know, the gang member than to see the little boy inside of me. I'd rather people see my reputation and maybe be afraid than to see that I'm just a little kid trying to figure it out. You know, I'm just a, honestly like 
I just want love. I just want affection. Like it's really that basic. It just somewhere down the line, I twisted love with violence and I twisted, you know, gang camaraderie with love. And, you know, it was hard to finally detach from that. So when I first got out, you know, if we're talking about like the reintegration into society and getting a regular job and that, like, yeah, that shit sucked because your use, it's like my ego won't have it, you know? Um, like, Hey, I'm just working minimum wage. And you start right at the bottom again. You start at the jobs that they were doing at 16 when you were first involved. Yeah. And, and uh, I'm, I'm like, man, no, this isn't for me. Get another job. And it's like, you know, eventually I started bartending by the grace of God. But still, I was like, man, this shit ain't for me. This isn't for me. So, you know, I always did things on the side. And and because I couldn't let go of that identity, it protected me from my, like, it protected me in so many ways. Like, when I looked in the mirror, I didn't truly see myself. I even, I saw my reputation, my persona, I had built something that was bound to break because it wasn't real. And it did break. And I'm happy to still be alive because when it broke, it was that moment where it was either, hey, I have to figure out to live completely new or I don't. And that's why, you know, when, when we're talking about reintegration, ex-gang members, convicts, I understand that that journey is extremely difficult. But, um, and I give, when I see rehabilitated people, I give them the utmost respect. respect because I know that it's not easy. They're trying. They're tr- they're legitimately, yeah. they're trying. Because exactly. you get how freaking hard it is to, 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 to shy away from that. People in the world now are complaining about salary cuts, 20%, and they're like losing it. Oh, I got to make 45000 compared to the $65,000 I made? No way, no way. And you're like, dude, piles of cash. I'm talking piles of cash. And you've had that. And now minimum wage? What about that difference? Yeah. And what about that psychological mess up of feeling like, okay, I'm trying, I'm trying. And like, no, I agree, 100%. It's like, I get it that that money is frowned upon in, in in the way it gets earned. However, it's still that same feeling of recognizing that if it was that easy to attain it, and now you go into a position where it's like, okay, now I got to make money the right way. But the reality is, it's it's as hard as it would be for anyone else, even tougher, because you it's a full lifestyle change. You're making a one eighty degree difference, and you're trying, and that's what matters. What was um. How much did you coming out, honestly, Jose, and, and sharing your story play into the the life you do want to live now financially? You know, like, is, is this something you're going just, you know, deep end with and you're not really having anything else financially backing you? Are you, are you, and I, I, I genuinely am curious, especially for our audience too, because a lot of our audience members are, you know, they, they like to... Uh, really grind it out beyond the nine to five. They've got side hustles. They've they want to be eventual entrepreneurs. They are entrepreneurs, and they they don't their mind and their their their, their body's ticking every minute of every day, as well as myself. So, how, where are you at now with with gaining that financial compensation? 
Well, we said you, you mentioned like how did you know me sharing my story? How did that affect you know maybe the financial future that you know I'm shooting for and those things? Um, it empowered me. You know, I had hid behind that persona I just talked about my entire life. And I was like, hey, I can be myself. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It doesn't matter what anybody has to say. You know, when I was right there about to take my life, it was just me and God. And guess what? That's how I I go by every day. I got to do what's best for me and I got to do what's right. What's right comes first. And what's doing what's right is always going to be what's best for me. And um, having that realization that... um. I got one life to live. You know, a, a, a lot of the homies we have, we have good intangibles, you know, honor, loyalty, the willingness to fight for something, the willingness to sacrifice for something. It's just how do we turn that very concrete thing that we have and, and are able to exercise that in the streets? How do we turn that into regular day-to-day life? And use that to, to keep, use those intangibles to lead us to success because we have it. And that was the hardest part. I could never figure it out. <laughs> you know, I always, I always knew. I was like, man, how do I like, you can't punch your way to success. You can't, well, maybe you can if you're a boxer, but you know, um, like I can't, I can't use my brute force to give myself the future that I want. And, and all the colors of the, uh, the paint are there, but it's like, well, how do I paint this now? <laughs> Someone show me. I never learned. I got all the paint, but how do I do it? Exactly. So, you know, now where I'm at, it's realizing, you know, one, I'm grateful to be here. You know, I'm grateful to be alive. That's the foundation. Um, and believing that I have a future. Before, I couldn't plan for a future because I couldn't see a future. You know, finally, I'm 33 and I'm like, man, I think I might live till I'm maybe 60. And that's still young, you know, finally, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, you know, before I was like, man, I don't think I'm going to make it past the week. I'm worried about getting past the day. So now it's like, okay, now I finally was like, man, I might actually live longer. So shit, I got to do something. And, you know, fortunately I have a passion and, you know, I definitely have a vision and, and it's what we do in sharing people's stories and, you know, I pretty much use all the intangibles that I've had and I use them for good. And I use them for something positive. You know, it's not easy being, you know, sharing my story and stuff like that. I get nervous every time and it's just part of what the vision entails. It's part of what the dream requires of me. And the same way that I was willing to do anything for my gang for something that I don't, that at the time was part of my story, but that I don't believe was worth my life. Now I'm doing something that I feel and know is worth my life. And it gives me an invigoration and a passion to attack every day with purpose. I've never had that before. The closest thing that I've had with purpose was the purpose that my gang gave me. You know, now I have that purpose, but it's, the purpose and literally just sharing stories. And I love it. You know, how that, and how we want to go on the financial level. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I like to stay, you know, I like big concepts, but you know, financially it's like any other thing, you know, we understood that we would spend a lot of money the first year. We hope to be in the black this year and we hope to make, a, you know, money the third year to pay for what we're doing. You know, that's, just, you know, that's the system we live in and we have to try and u- utilize it to the best of our ability. 
Definitely. It's of course you're investing time, but also money into something that you're creating here and then allowing others to be put on a platform to, you know, hopefully by then, you know, raise enough viewership and raise enough awareness. Um, this hopefully being a part of it and bringing it to light in Western Canada where I'm from. Um, so people can recognize that. And, you know, when you, when you, when you put it the way you did, Jose, it goes to show that it, it's important to move on, but it's also important to look back and learn from some of those shortcomings, learn from the faults and mistakes you made, you know, don't relive them, but don't forget them. And, and I find that is something a lot of us as human beings do sometimes where we do our best to just like almost ignore and like erase things that we've done in our life. Like as though we're a computer and we put it in the recycle bin, but guess what? Just because you deleted it doesn't mean you can't get access to it again. It means you, you, it could come back. It's still sitting in that recycle bin. And, and one day you got to click that thing and you got to go through all that garbage. And until you do, and I find that you really have been, you literally are every damn time you come onto a show, you're reliving certain moments depending on how people ask it and just how well composed you are and, and how much you accept that level of vulnerability and the um, just processing all that and recognizing that you still need to look forward and take in the values you learn from it without repeating certain behaviors. It's, it's honorable, man. It, tr it truly is. It just says it makes me want people to see and get out of this conversation because a part of me believes in second chances. Part of me really does. Um, yeah, there, there's people that have done extremely cool things like to the point where it's psychotic and there are people who certainly should be and stay in jail and that's where they belong um, based off of what they've done and just who they are biochemically in their brain. But I mean, for you, man, you're just, you're a normal guy. You know what I mean? And by normal guy, I mean like you, you you've got the ability and the capability and well-spoken attributes to you um, where I, I agree just, there's just, when you're that young and you're trying to figure out life and you talked a little bit about support systems it kind of does lead you down certain paths that only until you get older or face the consequences make you realize that I, I got to do better, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, we all reach that point and, you know, I believe in second chances too because I've gotten many second chances. I feel like this is my biggest second chance at life right now. And um, I'm really just trying to do the best I can with it. You know, I had lived a life that was, you know, looking back at it, like, like we said, there are some good intangibles to it. There are some good concepts, but in the black and white, it was bad. And I feel like I have a second chance to, to live a good life. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to, to go on that journey because I know that it never ends. And that's the attitude I take with myself and, and that, um, being okay with that, being okay with the process. And did you ever feel sorry for yourself? 
Oh yeah. yeah, I was the victim, of course. Yeah, it was woe is me. Yeah, woe is me, woe. and and um, you know, definitely felt sorry for myself. I was the vi- I made myself the victim in my own story. And that that's it's as human as human gets, right? It almost I brought I got very emotional just hearing you talk about when you were five years old and your parents separated and you know your father left for some time and as a five-year-old kid you're just thinking oh dad's gonna come back dad will come back dad will come back and then you reached you said you reached a point where you knew and recognized that he's not coming back and with that childlike imagination that I feel like, you know, you, you still gracefully have and the ability to explain your stories really well. You at that time, like, imagined what a good father looks like. And you were, you were imagining, you know, if your father was there, what he would be like and how he would support you. And that's deep, man. And that's something where you came to terms with where I even know people personally, man, where they're like, you know what, man? Because my father or my mother or, or, or my so-and-so wasn't in my life during all those precious times, they don't deserve to come back in it. And sometimes you're like, yeah, you know, as a friend, I mean, I personally haven't experienced that. But it's like, you're like, yeah, you know what? If that, if that helps you cope, man. And like, if, if that helps you go through it. But you forgave your dad. You forgave your mom. And you said that you have such hope. And you also recognize, going back to what we said in the beginning, because you forgave your own faults, it made it that much easier to forgive your father. And I want you to kind of talk about that, man, where how did you manage to do it? And and when you did it, was it a load off your shoulders? Do you still sometimes wonder if you should have or shouldn't with all those years missed from someone who, um, you know, is like your hero, you know? You know, I've been pretty fortunate. Um, I've been pretty fortunate in the perspective and, and that I've been able to get and, and from the life experiences I've had in my family. And, you know, my mom did the best she could. She was the first person I resented. And that's just what it is. Like, man, she used to beat the crap out of me all the time. And I'm not talking like, you know, hey, here's, here's a belt. And no, it was, it was ugly sometimes. And And I kind of like detached myself at a young age. I, I emotionally detached. I numbed myself. And, you know, fortunately, I had sisters who, from them, I was able to hold on to, like, an affectionate part of myself, you know, because, you know, they would give me affection. And, and luckily, I had that. And they supported me throughout my entire life, along with my mom. Just my mom was, you know, she had her own issues. And I didn't realize that, you know, as a kid, you're not going to stop loving your mom. So I loved her. It's just there wasn't a real, like, um, emotional, lovey-dovey relationship. And I kind of, in my heart, blamed her for me being violent. Like, anytime I'd get in some pretty ugly things, I'd be like, eh, this, this, <laughs> this ain't worse than what my mom did to me. So that's how I justified a lot of things. Even when I went to prison, you know, um, when I was in the LA County jail, I told one of the homies, I was like, whatever happens in here isn't going to be worse than 
and whatever what I've already experienced. This is what what you know that you can't you can hurt me physically. You can't hurt me emotionally because I've already built the protective layers for that. But when I was in prison for all those years and I met so many different people with different stories and we all had similar themes, you know, dysfunctional family, absentee dad, and a lot of them were worse. I finally was able to like open my eyes and like, hey, like my mom did the best she could with what she was given because I'd never forget one of the, you know, one of the homies was like, I never knew my mom. Another homie was like, yeah. I knew my mom, but she had a different guy over every weekend. She didn't care about me. Um, or it was, it was, you know, I thought that I had it bad. You know, my experience was bad relative to me, and that's all that matters. I, there's no comparing them. But once I was able to open my eyes and see, like, hey, you know, given all these other stories, like, my mom had a fault in her discipline beyond a doubt. But then I, you know, I acknowledged all of the good things she did. She was there every day. You know, she worked three jobs. She, she cooked, she cleaned, she did the whole nine, you know, but she had her own issues and she has her own story with violence. You know, they call it a cycle for a reason. You know, my mom's from Sinaloa, Mexico. And from what I've heard is that, um, she had it pretty bad, you know, and how can I blame her and really hold that resentment towards her for something that, you know, I get emotional because we have that connection. I know how she felt when she was getting beat because I felt the same way. And, and she told you this after years of talking. No, my mom didn't talk about it at all. It's just finding out information, talking to cousins and stuff like that. And yeah, yeah. And I just, you know, I was able to see her as a person. And, that, you know, and man, that was huge. That was huge. That like opened at least something. And then I did the same with my dad, the same process. I, you know, you have the questioning, the whys, the crying. My dad opened his home to me when I got out of prison two years on parole and I got to know him. The homies don't get to know their dads, you know, like. I was able to see that I am fortunate in so many ways. And, you know, I was able to see my dad like, hey, he has his own issues. Like he's going through his life the same way I'm going through my life, you know? And the hardest person to forgive was myself because how do I forgive myself? Like I hurt other people. I need those people to forgive me. You know, how am I going to be like, yeah, yeah, it's everything's good. Like, you know, it's not. Like, um, I did horrible things and it broke me down. You know, the whole facade, the persona, everything. I, I couldn't stand my own reflection in the mirror and I couldn't come to terms with, with how to forgive myself. So the only way I was able to do that was, hey, I had to go to something bigger than myself and I had to go to God. And that's what let me, you know, personally like, hey, Finally, like, hey, whatever you did, it's over. It's done. Don't sweat it. Move forward. But the caveat, you can never do those things again. And you can't justify those things ever again. And that was the change. Wow. That is, that is very deep. And that, 
goes to show that you literally had to prevent yourself from going back to this victim mentality where you rightfully, hey, from what you told me, deserve to feel. Yet the moment you looked at your mother as the main character of her own story and to a degree your father as the main character of his own story, you know, you shared it now and you shared it on previous episodes where you're like, well, I just got to kind of hear how things look on their end and what they went through. And it's incredible how, well, it's incredible and it's unfortunate how generationally things become amplified sometimes where the treatment we got, we give back to our kids sometimes just like inadvertently, sometimes like without even thinking twice about it. But you don't recognize that you're doing far worse to that, to your kid than what you did. And then they're trying to go through all of it at the same time. It's very mature of you as well. Very mature, Jose, to talk with your friends about it. It's huge. It ain't anything like how you felt. But I'll tell you right now, man, I remember when me and some of my closest homies that we all knew each other since we were um, of the age of 5 to 15, this was when one of our friends just got married. Some of the guys are just sharing stories about their upbringing and some of the you know tough things they faced and the challenges. Nowhere near what you and your friends went through. But, you know, every, everyone kind of has and deals with their own struggle in their own certain way, right? One friend cried. Cried out of everyone. He didn't cry because of what he, he didn't have. He cried with such raw love and emotion of what he did have. And he was like, damn, guys. You know, mom and dad, 6 p.m. every day. They told us, no matter how annoying it was, that we got to be home for family dinner. Some of the guys were sharing that we never got that. You know, we never, we didn't know what that was. We crave it. When we have kids, we're going to have family dinner. And he's just, he's just bawling his eyes out. And he's like, sometimes you don't know what you have until you hear others' stories. Or sometimes you hear what you don't have. Vice versa, it works both ways, right? So for, for you to just recognize that your parents were also going through it you know it just shows man like i i think there's no parent out there as they get older and they reflect i mean i hope they want the worst for their kid you know all all they really want is you know when you shared that you and your dad shared some tears i can't imagine Imagine, when when you you lived lived with with them for the three three years years as an an adult adult. yeah just some of the things that (laughs) yeah (laughs) what 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 made made it it tough? tough Was, was it, it like, like was it, was it, it you know, awkward resentment? Like, I was like, you know, like, it's, it's, you know, where I was at, I still had like an ego and I had a good amount of pride. And, you know, even though he's opened up his home to me, I would still think, like, man, you weren't there my entire life. If you were there, uh, like, yeah, things would have yeah. been different. So there's always like get sticky, the tension, you know, but I'm living with him and, I'm a, you know, grown man, he's grown man. And, and it was just getting over that. Like, Hey, like that's done. That shit's done. It's over, you know, and it's easier said than done, but I say it that way because what it's doing, holding on to it is holding me back. It's keeping me stuck. I don't know how other people like move forward. It wasn't for me. It was completely like it kept my heart in a negative space. And, you know, with my dad, you know, we did, we wept together and, 
I need to let those tears out because I told him, you know, like, why weren't you there? Yeah, you can't just put a blanket over it and be like, all right, dad, we're good now. You you feel like it helped to tell him, like, really what you felt yeah. like you missed out on. Like, that needed to happen. Yeah, exactly. And it was tough. And I'm fortunate to have had that experience. And let's be honest, I don't think that's an overnight thing. I don't think that's, all right, dad, let's sit down like we do on a podcast and let's let's talk about spontaneous. it. It's spontaneous. <laughs> yeah. It's it's actually happened, you know. You know Thumbs and waves. I quit drinking. Uh, about two years ago oh, but you good know, for you was, man it's amazing i was yeah thank you i was um you know me and him were drinking and you know what ha- you know alcohol inhibitions are lowered and it was late at night and i just told him like you know you know what like hey i blamed him i told him it was all his fault this and that and what he said he said he was sorry you know, you said that there's two sides to every story, that the only story, the only side I've heard thus far is my mom's side. And he was like, at the end of the day, I still love you. And I couldn't deny that he didn't love me because he opened his home to me. A grown ass man who still has his pride and ego and gang banging mentality and needs to leave L.A., get into a safer place. Right. And. You know, for me, you know, that was a huge step because when, when I progressed on later in life, I couldn't use him as a, as a, well, it's my dad's fault. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because from a son, from a son's perspective, that's, that's what's flipped the script. What would a father out there need to do or a mother who was in one of the positions like your parents were in that allowed you to forgive them? Like, what, what was it that you feel like they said or did that made you be like, yeah, you know what? As much as I got physically beat, as much as I, as much as you ran away out of my life when I needed you most on both different circumstances, what you just said to me or what you just gave me years later gives me a certain amount of solace and forgiveness that I can give back for us to have um, a cordial relationship. That's for any father or mother out there who loves their kids so much and realizes that they messed up hugely based off of their own demons, based off of other things going on in their life, and they want back in. And they're just, they don't know how. They're trying to figure it out. They keep reaching out. They're blocked. They're, they keep trying to come over and said wish the grandkids well if they're there. They can't. They're lonely. They're getting older. They're thinking, you know. Um, I guess the building block is to continue to be there. You know, if you're not there, you can't be there. Um, you know, my parents definitely did that, you know, with all their faults, they were available to me. Um, so that's the foundation, you know, beyond that, be honest, be vulnerable. We're all adults at this point. And it just takes time. Because for me, it wasn't necessarily, it was them being available, them being there. But it was also me finally going inward and seeing that I'm over here blaming them for being this to me or doing that to me. When I did all these things to other people, who am I to point the finger? You know, and um, it's a maturity thing too. It's a heart thing. 
takes time. And as long as you're there and you're willing, you know, and you do your part, that's all you can be content about. And you can have a good life knowing that you did your part because you can't control what another human being does, your son, mother, or otherwise. So, you know, just do your part, what you feel comfortable with, your part being foundationally just being there and just wait it out. That's, that's really sound advice is just continue to be there. Don't stop. If you really do care, you know, keep, keep pushing. It's like that aspiring entrepreneur who keeps failing and keeps waiting for money to turn around and it doesn't happen. It's like, Hey, if you really love this project and you believe in it, keep going, you know, go, go bag grocery bags on the side, make whatever you can part time until you know that this can, can uplift and, Maybe if things keep not going your way, reevaluate, ask for advice, talk to people. Hey, should should I keep knocking on their door on Christmas or should I come around for birthdays too? But, you know, I mean, besides that, just not just on special occasions, be there every day if you can, you know, I appreciate you saying that Jose. I, um, I'm curious to know if, if you, um, want kids one day, that's something that you. Um, you want to have you know, if you want to raise a family or you kind of yeah. that's something that you like yeah because I, I, I can never see myself like you know like a lot of us like i couldn't see myself married with kids but after the change i was able, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was able to like man you know that seems like something desirable to me you know it seems like something that you know meaningful and it seems something worth, worth, worth trying to pursue and get, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you, you talked about meaning there, and it kind of is going to lead me in, in one or two um, aspects of this conversation. Um, it's recognizing going back to once you feel like you've really figured out yourself. You start, that comes with love. You know, you come, you figure yourself out. You start loving yourself again. You start feeding your soul and then you feel like okay if i just fed my soul and i'm continuing doing so okay i'm okay with bringing life into this world you know let's just first fix this and this and let's let's work on myself prior to thinking about doing so and that's very much so through the stories you shared with me jose on this episode and just from what i see you've been working on um just recklessly for the last three years um so when you brought up needing to face god from a spiritual perspective, I find more so than a religious perspective, um, maybe both, open to share either way. I, I, I feel like there's so many people out there that would hear something like this and, and they're like, okay, well, what do you mean? Did you, did you see God? Did you feel God? Did you, did you put something out there? And honestly, man, like I just, I'd love for you to sort of share like what is, what was that? How when you, when you share such a powerful statement? How did you put that out there for you to feel like there is a higher power from your perspective? And we don't normally talk about um, religion per se on the, the podcast, but I mean, why not? I find for everyone out there, uh, God is what they believe, how they believe uh, uh, it is to them. And uh, I just, when you share such a powerful statement to what you've gone through, where you felt like you finally, in a sense, found God going through the motions of rehabilitating, what was that like for you? 
What, you know, was it like a one night thing? Was it like, you know what, let's, let's channel this in. I'm just curious to know when you respectfully say it with so much confidence, what that felt like. I mean, it's the catalyst to where I am now, you know, um, You know, when it comes to the faith as a kid, I had believed and I had stopped believing the moment I had lost hope. And I lived my entire life until recently that way. And I was able to regain my faith. And I know what my life looks like without faith. You know, faith is what keeps me going. It's actually, you know, we do a lot of you know, there's a day in and day out of what we do, you know, with our project and, and the money spent and all those things. And I wouldn't be able to do it if I didn't have faith. I wouldn't be able to do it if I didn't have that moment that I was, that I needed to change. Um, if I could describe it, you know, it was intense, you know. In that moment, I knew that I wanted to live. You know, when I had been having suicidal thoughts for, you know, going through that deep depression and like wondering if today's the day that I'm going to kill myself, you know, the, the self-talk like was evil. You know, don't be, stop being a coward. Just do it. Just kill yourself. You know, man, I don't, you know, I'm not the smartest guy, but to me, that sounds evil. And going through that, like, I needed to go to God. I needed to go to something bigger than myself. And the mechanics of that are dynamically complex when we're talking about the spirit and the soul. You know, I guess the thing that gets as close as to it is quantum, quantum physics, right? We have no clue um, as far as the regular person and I really think that it's a positioning of your heart for that change to happen. When you have an experience with God, it's like it's something that you long for with the deepest part of your being that you really want to change. And for me, you know, it was more intense because I was in an intense spot. You know, I was like my depression was 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 unreal for me, at least because I had never experienced something so debilitating especially to someone like me who's like I'm a fighter I'm I'm this I'm that and like every day man I'm just fighting to live and I was like if this is going to be life every day like I have to fight to live every day I can't do it so you know when I cried out to God I cried out with everything I had and I think that's why I got that um that metaphysical that spiritual experience you know, my back was against the wall. There was no other way. There was no way, you know, no amount of therapy, no amount of self-help books, no amount of this, no amount of rah, rah, rah. Like something in the very core of my heart had to change. And like we, we talked about foundational thought processes that had to change. And it did. It shattered. And I was able to build brand new with being able to look in the back and learn. And, you know, I have the advantage of living, of living 
two completely different lives and it's terrifying sometimes but the way i was living before terrifies me more than the unknown of the future that i live in now because now i live in the hope of the future and what can be before i lived in this is just what it is and now i live in you know in a whole different mindset and man that lets me know for me personally that god is real and that's just for me and my story. And I will never deny that fact because if, if that, if I didn't have that moment, there's no question. I wouldn't be here talking to you right now. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's, that's really honest. And that just, it goes to show you the moment you have a set of hope, belief, and this willpower for change in your heart, like in deep rooted in yourself, you know, you, you, you go through the natural process of, of, of rehabilitating and of, 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 of recognizing that when you look in the mirror, you're not that person anymore. You're so you're someone brand spanking new, you know, after having that spiritual episode and it's scary. I just, I put myself in your shoes, waking up each morning, getting out of your house, Maybe looking at it and going, I might not come back here. You know, that might be the last night I, I sleep over something I decide to do to myself or over me, you know, just getting caught in the crossfires. Who knows? So I might not come back, but I accept it. To you then, through the change, you know, looking at your bed after you make it, looking in the mirror and being like, you know what? I'm making the changes. I have more to change. I'm going through it every day but i know i'm coming back to this bed tonight and just that that self-talk changes that recognizing that there's a higher power there's just already sitting down with yourself and being like there's more beyond me it doesn't have to be god but just it can be the element of like man this world doesn't revolve around me and my bullshit you know there, there there's something calling me to be better and that comes with being a better person. And yeah, that's beautiful, man. Just to see and have you walk me through that. That's powerful. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, it, it's crazy. It's crazy, man. You know, every time I think about it, it's it's tough. But, um, you know, everything happens for a reason. And I feel like now when being in that moment is what helps me identify with so many people whom I, I listen and share their stories. Like I'm able to be like, yeah, man, I've been there. That's why this is a really unique thing based off of how you choose to honestly, like put yourself out there. And I'm, I'm going to say this. So one, I don't forget it. And two, um, to give some context and, and I don't want it to change whatever your response is. I had on an incredible human being. Um, he's a cancer survivor. His name's Steven Chorba. Um, his episode's going to be shortly released before yours. We talked about labeling. Your circumstance is very different, but I am going to put them in the same jar. He talked about the fact that, you know, you get dealt a card that you didn't deal with, similar to you. You get born into a household. You get born into a situation where it comes with certain things that you just didn't expect that would happen, things that are very unfair to you however way you decide to cope 
his card he talked about was surviving cancer. And uh, the very intense cancer at that, lung cancer, to the point where, um, you know, he had to surgically get operated on with his whole face getting pulled back and his, you know, his throat and just outside of that, preparing for that surgery, the fear of, you know, having a 75, 75% chance of not living anymore. You walk through that every day. But he argued that even when he went through that, his level of optimism shined through and he's like, I tell myself and other cancer patients I work with to not allow yourself to be defined as a cancer patient or a cancer survivor. So now why I say this is in your case, you know, one of the things, Jose, in which you're, you're, you're labeling yourself as is, okay, I'm an ex-LA gang member. And, and that's a big part of, of how you're labeling yourself, which that, that, in my opinion, that's fine. That's obviously it's alarming. It opens up your eyes. You go, wait, wait a second, right? And it's uh, it's catchy outside of what it actually is. But now marketing labels aside, I take it that you're okay with using that language and, and putting yourself out there as that. And what makes you okay with that? When you know now, to be very honest, you are way more than that. You're not that anymore. You know, so what has maybe, if I can frame this in a way, allowed you to still allow that to be like, this is what I'm going to go as. I'm not hiding from it. Uh, I am not that anymore. I'm so much more. But there's so much more to me that doesn't necessarily need to be mixed into that title. Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I am I am much, much more than that. And I definitely know that. But when we're getting to the X's and O's, I mean... um, it's just what the dream requires. If, if, if people want to see that headline, if that's what gets our foot in the door, that's what gets our foot in the door. I know that when I go and actually articulate in person, you know, the full story comes to life. You know, we do use that label just to, to, to give it a surface level attraction. And it's part of my story. And I'm willing to use every bit and part of my story to get to where I need to go. And I get have no, yeah. Yeah. To get my foot in the door, whatever I have, I mean, you know, when, when, when we were conceptually coming up with everything we were doing and, and one of the things we liked about what we do is that we leverage our entire story. We don't just leverage one part. We leverage every part of us. That's me and Ralph. And, you know, and we use it all. That's your brother, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 um, you know, we only use that to get in the door, but beyond that, when we actually start talking, we know that the full story will bring itself to light. Um, you know, I'm so many other things. Like I knew when I, I was going to AA, I was going to AA and I was like, is my story going to be all about a recovering alcoholic? Is my story going to be all about an ex LA gang member? Is my story going to be all about fighting depression? No, it's my story is going to be my entire story. Mm. Um, we do use that, that headliner, just, Hey, this is something interesting that we know maybe it'll catch someone's eye, get us in the door. And then we expand. expand on our entire story. Appreciate you saying that, especially like it, it allows everyone to see, that you you know you're more than that. It's not just like, 
So I'm just like, no, man, that's me, frick. Like, because <laughs> you, you, you do see that you are far more, man. It's it's amazing. You're, you're you're like we talked about today. You're not defined by the things you've done. You're defined by who you are. And when you bring up your brother, it creates a great segue. And I want us to sort of uh, come too close towards the end of the episode. I just want to be honest and share this with me that really, it, it, it was more than just that title itself that I appreciated. And this is coming from somebody who um, has a brother and who leans on uh, his brother and who looks at his brother as a best friend. And you've shared, I'm sure, certain things on other media platforms, um, as well as in our conversation where, you know, we are going to get your brother on and how much uh, his story resonates with yours, but both of you guys sort of uh, very different journeys that led to the same destination now in life. And it's beautiful. It, it reminds me of how me and my brother are currently uh, planning and strategizing our future together um, in terms of like what impact we want to make in life through martial arts. Now, there's something you said in your interview with, remind me his name again. Um, the one where it was 20 minutes that you sent me. Dean Wilson, perfect. The Good Life, I think, is his uh, uh, platform. So yeah, shout out to Dean Wilson because I do want to give him. Uh, yeah, that that was great, and he 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 allowed you to really speak wholeheartedly. And there's some great things that I got out of that episode to carry into this one. So thank you, Dean Wilson. Um, when you said that you and your brother struggled at a point in your lives to be honest with each other as men to talk about depression. That's huge, man. That's like, that's a very common thing, not only as brothers emotionally, but even as like men who are friends with one another. And sometimes we talked about ego coming in the way. You kind of just want to ignore that and have a good few laughs and call it a day. What do you, what do you feel like you guys did and, and, and what could brothers out there or, or people who need to be more emotionally available for their friends, especially men? If any way, if women feel the same way, but I just say this where I've had moments where it's tough, man. It's, it's tough having those hard hitting conversations with your brother. I think me and my brother have gotten a lot better at it. And we feel, we walk out of those conversations, give each other a hug and be like, man, it's so good. Like why we bottle this up? Cause it feels a little bit like, especially when it involves them and involves their, your judge of character about them and vice versa. And just really seeing if like you hope this person gets you cause they, they've been around all your life. You know, what What started making it easier for you to be like, listen, bro, like, this is what I'm going through. I'm depressed. And then him also being like, yeah, man, so am I. And that's one thing. <laughs> it's one thing that you guys related. But, like, how did you allow for that to organically happen for any other person out there who wants to be able to share these, these things, things with, with their, their brothers? brothers? I mean, there's who else better to share it with? Um, and backstory backstory by the way sorry for cutting you off jose just i recognize people don't know this your brother fought in the war in afghanistan he lost his legs and he became a paralympic uh bobsled uh sled hockey gold medalist unreal and yeah after winning that and feeling like that would you know make him propel and feel like he's worthy enough to feel entitled to something he still felt like there's something missing. The depression was still there. Hope I'm articulating this correctly. 
And then you and him were kind of both in this position where it's like, we got to talk. Glad I'm glad you gave that backstory because it's actually very it's very important in in our narrative at we are all one story. Um, you know, my brother Ralph, he's an American hero. He lost both his legs in Afghanistan serving his country. Um, he came back. He did the rehabilitation, the physical rehabilitation. And instead of hiding under a table, because if anyone can say, woe is me, it would have been him. You know, I had both my legs when I was going through my depression. It's, it's, it's like I wake up and Ralph's going through his depression and, and we're not talking. Like, it's all internal. Like, we don't, like, I have no clue how to, one, I don't even know what I'm going through. <laughs> you know, like, I'm just bottling everything in and, and, and so was he. But um, this is when you guys were living with each other. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I was able to learn a lot from him, things that I needed to learn. You know, he's going through his depression. I'm a more abstract, think, abstract thinker, conceptualizer, and, and that works for me. But I was able to see him put in the work and give no excuses with no legs. Um. He ended up coming out here. We moved out here to Denver. He ended up training and he ended up winning a gold medal in uh, South Korea, in Pyeongchang, South Korea. And unreal. You know, he came back and so he still felt like shit. Um, he thought that that was his answer, that he would, he would get value, that the gold medal would give him value as a person. And I think as, as people, that's what we're taught to think that this, this accolade, this, this goal, the end goal, the end destination, that this is what will eventually give us our meaning and our value. And, and the fact of the matter is Ralph looked externally at a gold medal when well, we now know for a fact that the gold is inside each of us. You know, when it comes to talking about our depression, it's like when I decided that I was going to live, you know, I had a series of realizations. One of them was that I would have to be completely honest. That I had lived, I had lived a facade around foundational, you know, falsehoods. And if I was to continue living, that I would have to live honestly. And that included me talking about whatever I was going through. I remember I just came in one day and I just started talking to Ralph. I was like, bro, this is what I'm going through. Like, this is just what I got going on. And he looked at me like, he was like, man, I feel the same way. And that wasn't something, Jose, where you kind of were building up the confidence to share with him. You're kind of already mentioning that internal dialogue you're giving yourself to be prepared and then one day you're just like i'm just gonna say it it's gonna come on so yeah it out and um you know ralph is a great guy and he's he's a great person with a great story but he has a beautiful heart you know um my back was against the wall he saw that he felt it and you know from that moment of like finally releasing it and just being like hey man this is this is what i have to do to live and if I want to live, I have to be honest and talk about what I'm going through. 
Ralph was all ears. He started talking about it. And, um, you know, we were still depressed when we started. We are all one story and doing interviews and like, you know, we're still, still going getting, through it. Exactly. Still. We're, you know, we're in the depression. We're trying, like, we're getting out of it though. And, and, you know, the time was now, like, we were like, Hey, this is, this is, there's no better time than now. Let's, let's just start working. And, you know, um, I think the first time that I mentioned um, that I wanted to kill myself, it was we, um, I hadn't told Ralph that yet, but um, we went to go talk at um, University of Colorado Boulder. We went to go talk to uh, to philosophy class, and this is when we just started, and we just started putting ourselves out there, and I know the commitment that I had made was that whatever questions I'm asked, I'm going to say the truth and it doesn't matter if people like it, what I think, or it doesn't matter whatever the judgments are. I'm just going to say the truth. And a student raised their hand and said, what's the closest you've ever been to death? And I told him, I said, when I was going to kill myself, that's the closest I've ever felt to death. Ralph looked at me like, shit. I looked at him like, hey. <laughs> you know, and we just built a whole thing around being honest about be about we built something about people just being themselves and that allows us empowers me to be myself you know it, it works it works dynamically you know when you give of yourself you inevitably receive and and you know that's where we're at now but you know, if, if like brother relationships, there you have a brother for a reason, utilize it. Yeah. Wow. I, uh, I really, really appreciate the, the, the focused attention on just being honest without the worrying about whatever outcome is going to come out of you sharing that based off how your own brother can look at you um it's close to home man i've got i've got like two people in my life i consider my best friends they're in my like core circle and they're going through it for very different reasons man like they both tell me uh one more in, in particular than the other um again going back to honesty and i always tell them i'm like man never be never be worried and letting me know how you feel He's like, man, I feel like offing myself every day. He's like, it's hard. One has physical battles he deals with, with his car accident he got into, and then another one, and just got a shitty, shitty car at life, man, later in his 20s, and he had his whole future ahead of him. And the best part about him, man, is like he's set up his own studio inside his own home. And he's still finding ways to work and he's learning photography. It's been like one of his like passions all his life. And now he's turning into a side hustle and he works at his own schedule, but he's in pain, man. Excruciating amount of physical pain to the point where he's like, man, it hurts so much that I just want to, I want to end it. He's like, I think about it every day. And man, on the other end, my other friend, he, he deals with it mentally. He's, he's, again, I was like, as a friend, I need to be curious and I need, I need to have a fine balance of curiosity and, and genuine like set of ears. And for anyone out there who has friends or, or has a brother who it feels like they want to do that to themselves, I, I'm sure we could learn a thing or two about being honest 
and and this is gonna formulate in a in a question on on my end, but man, like I I have my other friend tell me like he he battles with uh, with bipolar, and for him it's a mental challenge. And what I've learned from him telling me and from my research, people who feel that way when they they go through their episodes, sometimes they want to cause harm to others. Bipolar one or bipolar two? I wish I knew. I know it's not that severe because, again, I use this word very carefully. But he's like functional, like he like you wouldn't think he is. That that's how you know. But he has his episodes, and they come every now and then. So I'm gonna assume type one, but. For him, Jose, he struggles with like not wanting to hurt others, but hurting himself. And it, it numbs whatever pain he deals with. And I'm like, man, like as a friend, when I have like two people I consider brothers who go through this, I'm always like, how can I be of more help? And sometimes I fear, I honestly, man, like it. it's even tough to put into words where I'm like, what if one day, God forbid, something happens to one of them and for me as a support or as someone who I feel like I'm there for them, I go, but what if I wasn't there for them enough? I knew. I knew things their families didn't even know. And was I really there for them? And that's, as much as I'm not in as much discomfort and pain there in every day, I, I sometimes live with that guilt, man, where I'm like, try and tell them, I'm like, can I be more of support? And sometimes my one friend and it hurts, he's like, man, you're busy. And I was like, man, I'm never busy for you. It's like, just, you got to ask. And it's scary, man. It's a very scary thing when you got, when you're on the other side, you know, and you're living away and you're doing your life, but you know, you know, your own homies are going through this shit. And I'm just wondering maybe from you who's gone through it, what were some of the things maybe your friends did or didn't do that you wish happened, you know, like just based off of being more there for you, even your brother. You know, when, when you are going through it and you want to end your life, it's uh, it's just scary to know when you know someone who's in that situation. All you want to do is help them out. Well, there's a few parts to that. Um, it's like, um, it's all about being comfortable with doing your part. You know, like... Um, to be honest, I've shared some stories and some of them are intense. You know, some of them are, everybody's in a different part of their story. You know, some people are still in a depression. Some people are in their trauma. Some people, and some people are on the other side. They're on the other side of trauma. They figure out how to positively cope with whatever they've been through. Some people are in the middle trying to figure it out. And I know when I first started um, sharing stories, like it weighed down on me. You know, um, and it was just learning that I'm not attached to the outcome. I respect that that person's a sovereign individual. So then, you know, after that, I have to do what's my part. I need to I focus on what it is that I'm comfortable with doing and then understanding that at the end of the day, you know, this is a dynamic process. Like, um, you know, being a good person, you're going to feel good. You should ask yourself those questions, you know, <laughs> like at the end of the day, you should ask yourself those questions. I think there'd be a problem if you didn't. Um, but we all figure out what we're comfortable with giving without sacrificing our own health. 
And for us to be able to still, you know, live life, you know, in a positive way without getting in the mire of someone else's issues. Because, yeah, you as the friend or as the person there, you want to almost like be the fixer. You want to be like, oh, with my energy or my time, let me help fix, let, let me help fix what you're dealing with. But the reality is, back to things you've mentioned, man, it's up to them. It is. The very, very end, end of the day. day. It is. And I think the biggest thing we can do is give people space to be honest, yeah. to be themselves, to let it out, at least release. And, you know, it's, it's like it's a process. It's, it's a journey. At least you're a positive part of that journey. Um, you know, I, I actually thought about, you know, my cousin along for a long time, cause he actually did kill himself and these are heavy things. And, and if it would go to like, you know, it would be just giving, giving him space and believing him absolutely about whatever he's going through. It's just that simple. Okay. And then after that, we give that space. Okay. What then what's the next step? That's very fair because you're not going to that person being like, you shouldn't be feeling this way. Yeah. And it's like, well, hey, I do. I, I, I can feel how I want to feel. This is me. And I find that's what happens a lot of times is people try and put almost too much positive reinforcement and too much, well, look how colorful the world looks. Yeah. But through their perspective, it ain't looking that colorful. Exactly. You know, they're, 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 they're in a very different world than you are. Um, and even though you can't see it, they feel it every day and you just have to sit there and, and respect it. And, and, and I recognize that if you're getting the chance to listen to it, yeah, they're telling, true. they're telling you, they trust you in it. And that's knowledge and that's information about their life that maybe potentially through sharing, they heal from it a little bit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. My, 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 my condolences to to you with your cousin man that's that's not easy you know it's not um but it's very real it makes what we talk about that much more important big time 100 man with we are all one story the platform in which you and your brother have created guide us through with our listeners how they can potentially share their story um what they would need to do um what uh what it is and how it's done. I want let's hear about it, my man. I, I want to give you the chance to talk about your incredible platform that you've created. Yeah, so you know what we do is is, is pretty simple. Um, we just go around and we listen to people's stories and we share them on our on our um, social media platforms on our YouTube, Instagram. Um, you can find us at We Are All One Story. If you want to share your story, um, you can email us at engagements at weareallonestory.net or through any of our social media channels. But to talk more about it, um, you know, what we do is very simple, but we believe that what happens in those, in those rooms, when we listen to those stories, we do believe that there's something dynamically positive happening. When someone decides to take ownership of their story, and to put it out there in the world, even conceptually and be like, Hey, this is my story. And that's that. I think that's powerful because I felt that in my own life. So has Ralph, like, we know it's real. When you take your story and make it yours, you're the main character in your story, nobody else. And, you know, there's many levels 
to to the positivity to to the outcomes of what we want and stuff like that but the biggest one foundationally the most basic is people realizing that their lives have inherent transcendent value and if we all really believe that we need to apply that same belief to our very own stories and be empowered after that and and this is anyone that can like submit something where they will get their video of themselves explaining their story. Yeah. Yeah. There's no prerequisite. The only prerequisite is honesty. If you're not honest, it doesn't work. But I, we believe most people come on with the intention to be as honest as they possibly can. I love that. And you know what? There, there, there's a power in people sharing it and it going out there. There's other similar platforms I've heard that are anonymous that allow people to write postcards or, or share a video and it's out there, but it's not going to be shared. It's just kind of, they feel like they verbalize it out and that's healing. But for you, you're, 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 you're letting people know that, Hey, we're putting this out there. You're going to be able to have your story heard. Maybe that one person or, or the several others you wanted to share it to, you could send it their way. And I've, I've experienced that at firsthand, you know, Jose, like we have one gentleman who's, sort of was our like catalyst in us building the survival component of um second floor podcast because the difference between you and me like i love that your platform is for everyone anyone ours of course you know we we have like when we first started three different uh themes right like how to survive and thrive and keep good vibes and in life business and health and he was our first survivor quote unquote where he talked about how his cocaine addiction that he has overcome has helped teach him certain lessons in life where he's now clean and he's running a multi-million dollar construction business. And why I share that though is when he told me after it was finished that this is his way of coming out to his family and coming out to friends, it was so powerful. Even it actually being one of our biggest hits because so many people were curious to know, like, first of all, with his story, but the people in his life were like, what happened? You know, what, what really happened? How did he make this change? What did he go through when he was addicted? You're doing this for the entire world. Every single time you allow someone to express their story, because I just got to see how, just how powerful he felt after just like a load off his shoulders. To be like, ah, I don't have to share this a million times to people. Here's the video. Check it out. <laughs> and it's, it's, that's what you're doing for everyone and anyone. And I applaud you and your brother for doing that, Jose. Thank you. We love doing it. So. Yeah, that's awesome, man. We um, Coming towards the end here, I want to also bring to the attention your uh, memoir that you probably already have out. Uh, is it called Hope, Fear, and Love? It's called Love, Faith, and Violence, a True Song. And oh, I was so close. <laughs> I wasn't close at all. <laughs> Eat, pray, love. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the sequel. <laughs> so say it again for me. What's the book called? Love, Faith, and Violence, a True Song and Story. Fantastic. And where can people access the book? Yeah, we're going to release it at the end of February. You can just find it on our website at weareallonestory.net. Can't count me in on getting a copy too. Can't wait. That's awesome. Where can people connect with you, 
Jose, for anyone listening to this that uh, wants you on their podcast or wants to talk to you, further the dialogue off air, wants to just keep seeing your journey, um, where's the best place to find you online? I mean, you can email us at engagements at weareallonestory.net. We're pretty diligent about our emails. Um, or you could just DM us. You know, we see all the DMs. So it goes down in the DM. Hopefully, hopefully um, we can do some positivity out of it. Perfect. And a question we ask every guest, Jose, is what do you believe it takes to um, make it to the second floor? And that is literally, that is figuratively, we are on a mission to let everyone know that, you know, they are, are more than what meets the eye for the potential they have for themselves. You know, it's never ending. The, there's, no, there's no such thing as a ceiling, right? You could be putting yourself here when in reality, you do X, Y, Z, we're going to get you to here. And then the, the, the steps up to whatever it is you're trying to achieve, it's going gonna, it's gonna to keep going. You're going to keep elevating in life in one way, shape, or form. And uh, what do you believe from your story it takes for someone um, to get to that next level. Yeah, it's actually simple. We have it as the the foundation of what we do here. And it's funny you ask that because we have it at the base of the pyramid. It's faith, work, and humility. That's the first step. The second step, I, you know, keep on going up. But the first step, the foundation, you have to believe in what you're doing. You have to work towards it. And you have to be humble. And, you know, we believe that leads to success. I love that. Going back to revival slogan, work hard, stay humble, right? (laughs) Oh, wow. Faith, work, and humility, that three-tier process to make it to the second floor. I love that. When we look at where where your life is heading, I, I just want to acknowledge you once again, Jose, in truthfully being an icon and someone where people from all walks of life can learn a thing or two just from hearing your stories and your experiences and your wisdom, you know, from parents to brothers to um, those rehabilitating themselves back to society, um, ex-criminals, current criminals, current gang members, ex-gang members, you name it, man. You've got such a high level of emotional intelligence in my opinion where you can connect to the masses and i personally am so excited to not only just have had you on but like watch myself man from a distance and hopefully once this whole pandemic ends uh come on over to denver and and meet you in person and and you know grab a cup of coffee and do this all over again but um truthfully man what you're doing is um i hope you know it's it's incredible and it's it's why it was so easy to say yes even from how just respectful you were in reaching out and having a whole proposal made and giving me an idea of what your guys mission is it's uh it's beautiful thank you thanks for having me man no problem man uh without further ado man that's that's a wrap i appreciate you being on the second floor podcast uh for our listeners out there if you enjoyed um, this episode, uh, the way I did, I, I hope, and I'm sure you did please, um, like us, listen, share on Spotify, iTunes, um, Apple podcasts, every other platform that has podcasts, uh, YouTube, as well as, um, Telesoptic TV. So, 
Um, thank you. And that's a wrap.